I can guarantee that mankind will have a surprise for everyone that you will not soon forget. Welcome to Last Match Standing, the podcast where we review, relive, and rank the greatest wrestling matches of all time. As always, I'm Spencer. I'm the ringside doctor. And I'm JR's witness. And today, we are coming to you from June 28th, 1998, from the Igloo, the Civic Arena, because hell is in Pittsburgh tonight. The Igloo? The Igloo, yeah. yeah. They played hockey there. They oh called it the, it was a nickname. That's, that's what, I didn't it, make that it up. It seems like it's a little cold for hell. The yeah, Penguins exactly. play there, yeah. That's why, that's why I like it. It's good. Uh, hell is in Pittsburgh. It's King of the Ring, 1998. Tell us if you've heard of this match before. The Undertaker versus Mankind, Hell in a Cell. Would you say that this is the most divisive match that we've covered? As far as uh, consideration for one of the greatest of all time? Yeah, yes. probably. Yes, I would. But... It is a match, episode 66, that has won our poll on both Patreon and Twitter. So that tells me, divisive it may be, winner nonetheless, and it deserves a spot. I know for sure, when we started this show, we picked a few matches that we knew for sure were memorable, but did not belong necessarily on a list like this, right? We're talking greatest wrestling matches of all time. And, and this was one of them we talked about. Really early on. But I have to say, we've been doing this for two years now. And that's, that's crazy. Literally as of yesterday. As of yesterday. Yeah. Happy anniversary, guys. Uh, I, and I feel... I'm good. so sorry. Speaking of anniversaries, yeah, this episode is being released on the day of the anniversary. It absolutely is. That's right. June 28th. We are just 23 years removed to the day. Uh, this Hell in a Cell match, and obviously, as we know, one of the most memorable moments in the history of professional wrestling. Absolutely. So happy anniversary. Absolutely. Happy anniversary to this incredible match and everyone involved. Yeah. I mean, it's it's absolutely cemented its legacy, and, w- and we'll get into every bit of that. Um, but like I said, we've been doing this for two years now, and I feel like I at least have come to understand more intimately what it means to have a match to be great. First off, we've received hundreds of match suggestions over the last few years, and this match has been consistent. And people credit this match as the match that made them made them think that wrestling was cool, got them into wrestling, got their friends into wrestling, got their partners into wrestling, or that is one match that they'll always like show someone as the first match, right? Uh, it's its legacy is undeniable. 
Not to mention the commentary is some of the best in the sport's history with some of Jim Ross's lines spilling over into mainstream pop culture. Yeah. So this was the, oh, yeah, you don't like wrestling? Well, watch this. Yeah, this was pretty my, much. This was my uh, got my friends to watch wrestling. But the problem is a lot of my friends thought that this is what wrestling was. Yeah, this is sort of the ceiling, right? It's sort of hard to, to come down from here. Yeah. But, you know, the really interesting thing, and, and sort of this is, Lena, what you were talking about, is we discussed so much at the start of this show that we didn't want to make a list of the 100 WWE OMG moments. Yeah. Right? That was what we wanted to avoid. And this match is not on this list yet because of that. Because we didn't want to make a list that was just moments. Yeah. But with that being said, there are some moments that transcend wrestling history. And this is one of them. And I think more importantly, Spencer, we recently had the opportunity to do an interview with Zach Gowan. And I hope you've had the chance to listen to that by now because it was just the most incredible afternoon I think we've ever had. Uh, And we asked Zach in that interview... From the perspective of a performer, what is it that makes a match great? And his answer absolutely changed my perspective on this match and a lot of matches. It's not about having the stamina to go 60 plus minutes or, or knowing every wrestling hold under the sun. It, it's not, you know, having, you know, kicking out of 100,000 finishing moves. For the men and women who go out there and put their bodies through hell, it's about did we tell the story and did we captivate the crowd? And most importantly, did we create something that will be remembered? And if nothing else, the legacy of this match created a spot for them to be on this list. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's an easy mistake to make to see this match as the first Hell in a Cell match. It wasn't. Uh, we've actually this covered like the, the inaugural Hell in the Cell <laughs> in, in a past show. That's right. I think this is like the fourth one. So I, actually, so here's the thing about this. This is, according to JR in the moment, uh-huh. the second ever Hell in a Cell match. The first being Undertaker, Shawn Michaels. In reality, like this the is the third. third correct. Yeah. Because on Monday Night Raw, two weeks before... <laughs> They had a tag team Hell in a Cell match, but I think it was a dark match. Was it really? I think it was a dark match because there's no way JR would have said this is the second one ever if it yeah. was just on Raw two weeks ago. I think they were testing it or something, right? And so <sighs> it was Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Mankind and Kane. I don't know if it was a dark match. I'm pretty sure it might have been on. It might have been on air. You could absolutely be right. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. But JR does say it's the second ever. The truth is, whether it was on air or not, well, it's the third. I yeah. don't think that match ever ended. I think that Maybe match that's just it. descended yeah, into I don't know. chaos. I, that's exactly right. Yeah, it ended in a no contest. I know that yeah. for sure. Um, but I think I do hear some people say, you know, when we talk about Hell in the Cell matches, they credit this as like the first, but obviously we know it's not. Um, but what no, it did, it what this match did was change the perception of what Hell in the Cell was yes. and could be yes. forever. Yeah, I agree with that. And so you could say this match gave it a clean slate and could be you know considered the first in that way. But I mean, we, we've got some shit to talk about. Here, yeah, we guys. do. Yeah, so. I just, I Paul, I know you're going to get into you know how we got here because there's so so much. 
Uh, but I just want to make sure we're clear. JR and Jerry Lawler are on commentary. Surprise, surprise. Yes. And uh, Tim White is the referee. Uh, I, I wanted to, because Tim White was the ref, or was he, for Shawn Michaels' Undertaker. He. Oh, I don't remember. I don't think. Hmm. I feel like he played a part in it, but someone, someone at us. Yeah. Someone at us. I can go check my notes. I just don't have them in front of me. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I, I, I would be remiss if I did not bring up the referee from our last episode. And I just wanted to touch on it really quickly before Paul gets into this one, uh, because it was something that we thought was important to discuss. And, and I, I just missed it. Um, the referee for the Chris Benoit Booker T best of seven match at, at, uh, the great American bash 1998 was Mark Curtis. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mark Curtis. Well, Mark Curtis uh, was having he was battling cancer when he was refereeing that match. He oh. was diagnosed with cancer in 1997. Uh, he continued to referee for the next year and a half or so. He actually would pass just a year or so after this. Wow. Yeah, that Booker T. Crispin Benoit match. Um, but he's a guy that left a legacy, and and they have memorials for him. You know, events, memorial events since then. Uh, I know Shane Douglas is someone that has always dedicated and speaks very highly of uh, of Mark Curtis. So I just wow. wanted to say, you know, shout out to someone who was battling. You know, we talked so much about inspiration in that Booker T episode. He was living it, right? Like he was living through the physically hardest part of his life and still giving a phenomenal performance. He did a hell oh, of a yeah. job. He's like, yeah, you couldn't have. Could have fooled me. I had no idea this guy was battling cancer. Right, that. right. Incredible stuff. So just shout out to Mark Curtis. Um, but Paul, go ahead. Take us, take us to mankind, Undertaker. Okay, so to get here to King of the Ring, you actually have to travel back to two years prior. So these two have always been bitter rivals. Literally, mankind debuted the night after WrestleMania twelve. He has a match against Bob Holly where he beats him very quickly. But the main event that night is Justin Hawk Bradshaw and The Undertaker. At The Undertaker wins because, of course, he wins. He's The Undertaker. Mankind just inexplicably attacks him, does the mandible claw, and Raw goes off the air with Undertaker unconscious with this deranged schizophrenic character that we've never really seen before. Now, smart fans knew who he was, but the the average fan, who's this guy? So, a little over a month and a half later, they have their first one-on-one match at King of the Ring. Guess where King of the Ring in 96 was? Was it in Pittsburgh? Yes, it was. In the oh, England. my God. Their first How about ma- that? Their first match together, huh. which saw Mankind beat The Undertaker. Clean in the middle of the ring, which had not been that done. That doesn't happen. He beats him with the mandible claw. Just beats him. I've never seen anybody manhandle the Undertaker like that. Well, you say that, but yeah, we've had that before, but not not a guy half his size. No, no, I get it. I get it. It's a big deal. So after King of the Ring, they go on to have the Boiler Room Brawl. A match that Paul has been petitioning for. Yes, I have. And I have been petitioning against. I apologize. And that match saw, at that time, one of the most brutal just fights we've oh, ever seen oh, in, in WWE. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. And that Talk match, about paving the way for yeah. future hardcore The original matches. stadium stampede. That's you, it. You know what? You're it not wrong. It actually is. Basically is. They fought over the arena. 
That match again sees Mankind beat The Undertaker, albeit with the assistance from Paul Bearer, who betrays the dead man and reveals that he's actually the long-lost uncle of Manson, a.k.a. Mankind. So Really? Yeah, Uncle Paul. I did not know that. Or must, I forgot. I, I must have totally forgotten well, about they, that. One big happy family yeah, over apparently. there. Apparently. <laughs> so after SummerSlam, they go on to have a buried alive match, which Undertaker finally beats Mankind, but he is immediately thrown in the grave and buried by all the heels in the company. And this is the match where the lightning strikes the... Oh, what I love that Lightning moment. strikes, I the tombstone it. and the hand comes out. Yeah, yeah. But Undertaker actually doesn't return until the Survivor Series, where he descends from the rafters with a bat with these bat wings and looks like a vampire. Man, you know, Undertaker is known for, you know, having a strong association with uh, WrestleMania, but... I dare to say that Undertaker has an even stronger and deeper connection with Survivor Series. Oh yeah, that is debatable in a lot of ways. I, I, they are pretty close, if if not if not even. I would agree. I would agree. I would agree. I mean, I I remember they celebrated the 25th anniversary of of Taker at Survivor Series uh, not all that long ago. Yep. What, wasn't he buried alive at Survivor Series twice? I'm yes. Yeah. Like that's yes. insane. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on a resume. I would never wrestle a Buried Alive match in Survivor just, Series ever I'm again. I'm just imagining The Undertaker trying to get a desk job, and under, like, skills, it says, Buried Alive, twice, in November. <laughs> I just, I can't. So at Survivor Series, she was the first time that Undertaker just is able to defeat Mankind in a normal one-on-one match. And that's the last we see of these two together for around two years. So in 98, going into the King of the Ring... We haven't seen Mankind for months. We've seen Cactus Jack. Yes. But the night after WrestleMania 14, Dude Love reappears to stop Stone Cold Steve Austin from stomping a mud hole in Vince McMahon. And Dude Love is Vince's hand-picked corporate player. After two failed attempts to dethrone Steve Austin, Dude Love is fired. But the next week on Raw... Mankind reappears wearing a <laughs> dress shirt and a tie to prove that he is corporate material. And this is weird because they had dropped the association of Mankind with Paul Bear until now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Paul, I think you make an awesome point that we need to not just gloss over. The iconic shirt and tie. Yeah. The reason for doing that. <laughs> Is part of the, this. He aligns himself with Vince McMahon. I mean, yeah. just and he calls him dad. Ah, oh. so some of these segments where it's like mankind is being manipulated into doing stuff. Okay, dad, I'll go out there and I'll do it. I'll I'll wrestle two men in in a, in a dumpster match, dad. Or at your Survivor Series deadly game when he's betrayed, dad. Why? I don't understand what's going on. I never tapped out. So anyway, so. He kind of reappears to help out Kane in his embroiled feud with Undertaker. And my understanding is the original plan for this show was not Kane versus Steve and Mankind versus Undertaker. It was supposed to be the other way around. 
Like, we've already done that, so let's change things up. So, uh, Mick, you and Undertaker are going to go have a Hell in a Cell match, and uh, Kane, you and, uh, and Steve are going to have a uh, First Blood match. Have fun, guys. So, the story we always hear is when they're, uh, Mick Foley and Terry Funk watch the original Hell in a Cell match. What can we do to top this? And the famous line, Cactus, I think you ought to start the match up on top of the cell, and then Undertaker uh, can throw you off. Well, that's a good idea, Terry. Then I can climb back up and get thrown off again. If there is one thing... I wanted out of this episode. It was a Terry Funk impression. <laughs> well, you got it. You're gonna get one later on too. <laughs> so I see. So I love this. The event is scheduled to take place at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. The igloo. The igloo. Uh, 25 miles from Freedom, Pennsylvania, where Foley trained to become a professional wrestler at Dominic Danucci's wrestling school, bringing his career absolutely full circle. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, just you can't make it up. And the so after Terry pitches the idea and Mick originally made a joke and then Terry said, No, I'm serious. I think you start the match on top of the cell. They pitch it to Vince and Vince says, Well, you should climb up there to make sure the roof is safe. Oh, I already did. Vince will be fine. Okay. <laughs> Mick lied. He didn't do it. Oh no. <laughs> he lied too. And and then, and then Vince said, uh all right, so you you're comfortable up there? Yeah, absolutely. Absolute lie. <laughs> He totally said, lied to him. So, and and the reason Mick did not climb the cell beforehand, he's afraid of heights. Could have fooled me. Believe it or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> I fucking. Can't. What I think is actually insane about this match is the next match is the first blood. Mankind does a run in during that match and takes a stunner. Can you? Be- I mean, we're not even to what happened to him in this match yet, but knowing what happens, how the fuck? He takes a chair shot to the head and a stunner. Yeah, after, after this match. With all these years of pent-up frustration and aggression, these larger-than-life monsters head into the Civic Arena the igloo. to be locked Same inside building. of a cell. That would prove incapable of containing the pride, the heart, and the t- determination of Mrs. Foley's baby boy. And I'm going to quote Jim Ross directly. The pain that these two men are preparing to endure is inhuman. That is said before the match starts. Oh, I'd like to say something that Jim Ross said before the match starts. Uh, he begins by saying this may be the last structure that mankind and the Undertaker stand in before they arrive at the Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh. Well, and uh, King says it may not even stop there. It may go straight to the morgue. I'll bet he was sweating bullets when he saw Foley wasn't moving. Yeah. So now that we're here, we need to discuss a few things. So. This is the match that cements the double turn, which people always forget about. Because going into this match, Undertaker is still the conscience of the World Wrestling Federation. He's the locker room leader. And Mick Foley is this, oh, excuse me, Mankind is this evil, like, maniacal, bastard, nephew, Adopted son of Vince McMahon. And they've done a really good job of making him sort of slowly inch closer to being a face. And and it's these breadcrumbs that they're leaving with Vince 
horribly mistreating him. Yes, because after and this mankind match, doing everything that he can to impress his dad. Yeah, because after this match. Undertaker becomes the satanic cult leader. Yeah. And Mick Foley becomes arguably the biggest fan favorite of like like that like the biggest underdog fan favorite that the company had had up to this point. He becomes a three-time WWF champion after this. Taker is already a three-time WWF champion before we go into this match. That's so so interesting because it is so easy to get lost in the shuffle of of what this match is. To not remember that double turn and not remember that that this is really a turning point in their careers, not yeah. just physically, but for their characters. And oh, I think yeah, that's fascinating. because we, Taker becomes the Lord of Darkness and starts the ministry literally like three months down the road. And he's recruiting people and trying to embalm Steve Austin and sign contracts in the man's blood, sacrifice wrestlers to his higher power. That all starts here. What I love about this show and and about this match is that if you say King of the Ring 1998, this is what you think of. You don't yep. think of the fact that Ken Shamrock won the King of the Ring tournament. You don't think this is the night where Kane wins his only WWF championship, right? You remember this. Oh, and yeah. And nothing else. It, it just speaks volumes on what was a fairly memorable night already. Oh, yeah. To, to what goes down in the igloo. Al Snow lost a match because Head had a bottle of Head and Shoulders taped to him and pinned. <laughs> Al Snow. Yeah. Uh, That's what everybody wanted. Dan Severin <laughs> had a King of the Ring qualifying match against The Rock. And Triple H outed himself as being bi-curious on commentary. <laughs> and then he said, wait a minute, did I mean to say that? And then Jericho says... <laughs> I don't think so, but we're alive, pal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. By the way, when he said that, he was wearing a backwards leather paddy cap, aviator sunglasses, and no shirt. So people could have assumed. Yeah. (laughs) No, he he was the, since he was the 97 King of the Ring, he was on commentary. Right, I remember. remember. He ripped his shirt off. Let's be real. If you're saying that you've never been a little bit bi-curious, you're lying to yourself. Well, basically (laughs) what happens is China is on the Spanish commentary because she speaks Spanish. And, uh... He said, what's she going to talk about there? I don't know. Probably something about Taco Bell. Probably talking about Taco Bell. What's the matter, Hunter? You're not bilingual? Well, JR, I'm bi a lot of things. Lingual's not one of them. There's well. 10 <laughs> seconds of silence. I love the silence after. Wait a minute. Did I mean to say that? I don't think so, pal, but we're live. We're live. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, going like, if he had just not said a word, nobody would have cared. Nobody would have cared. But the fact that he got, like, really hungry. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Like, dude, chill. You tell people to suck your dick every night. It's he does. okay. He does. Uh, so Undertaker comes out. How did how did that pyro not engulf him in flames? I thought the same thing. <laughs> well, okay, so it's it's good to know. Mankind comes out first, right? With a chair. With a chair, and you're thinking, here we go. <laughs> you know, even if you've never seen this before, you're like, well, this is going to be something. You know, and Jr. and King do a great job of saying like, this is going to change the look. Of the WWF. You know what I mean? And it oh, did. Yeah. And it did. And uh, there is that moment where he walks into this cage. He looks at the ring. And then he walks out of the cell. He looks up. Throws the chair up. And he climbs to the top. I love that. He throws that chair. Perhaps the most impressive part is that he got it up there on the first try. First try. First try. Professional. Well, he tries to do it again later. Put that on well. his resume. <laughs> 
So Mankind climbs up on top of the cell. He's sitting there waiting. The the gong goes off. Undertaker comes out, swallowed in flames. I don't understand it either. <laughs> she walks through three explosions, and it's so loud the, the screen just goes white because of the because of the freaking like pyro. Like wow, he's he's already been through hell. <laughs> and what's really insane, if you think about it, is Undertaker is walking to this match with a fractured ankle. Yep. And he's got two bruised ribs. And he's got to climb the cell. I mean, that's the first thing he's got to do. Is but he it's not even just get into the ring. It's I need to use this fractured ankle to climb a cell and get to the roof. And the only thing between the Undertaker and the concrete floor while he's climbing is imagination. Oh yeah. He gets up there and then immediately gets hit in the back with a chair. As you do. So this is the moment where Mick probably started to regret lying about climbing on the roof. They're up there for roughly, what, a minute and a half? And you yeah. can just see the roof is just starting to break. It, yeah, it sort of gives in a couple of places. Well, uh, they step on one of the panels, and the panel just... Yeah, they, they step, oh. like, because the very, very corner of it, they put way too much pressure on the corner. <laughs> and I don't know if that's a flaw in the design or if they just, you got two 300-pounders. Like they said, I mean, well, just... when a year prior, when Undertaker went there with Sean, the roof held fine. Well, it's Sean Michaels. Yeah, he's a hundred pounds lighter than Mick. Uh, but what really blows my mind is how close the outside edges of the cell are to the crowd. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. it's scary. There's not a lot of give between that cell and the, and the If barricades. you're in that front row, you can absolutely reach out and grab that cage. And there's not a lot of clearance. No, at there all. isn't. That's why. They had it the way they did it. And I think what I love the most is when they get the, the edge, they start fighting. It's like, they're fighting right above us, folks. I don't like this one damn bit. And before JR is done talking is when Mick gets thrown off the cell. And everyone is so preoccupied with him hitting that table and sliding at the barricade, they forget that he landed on Hugo Savinovich and knocked him unconscious. Yeah, as soon as I see that fall, the first thing I think is, poor Hugo. Because you see Hugo. <laughs> the first thing you think. You see him. You see his chair break. He hits the barricade and then falls backwards. In all seriousness, though, could you imagine if he had landed just inches more to the right and literally he would have been in Hugo's lap? Probably would have killed him. It may have killed him. You're, tra- you're talking about a 300-plus pound guy taking a 16-foot fall and landing on you. I think it would have killed Hugo. Now, it did allegedly break his leg and knock him out. As many times as I've seen this match in this moment, I had never noticed until now when Mick takes the fall, you can see him grab the edge of the cell and use it to adjust himself. Oh, he has to. Had he not done that, he would have been in the front row or worse, hit the guardrail. Yeah. It would have been really bad. Could you imagine? I mean... What's crazy is because they show this replay a thousand times. He could not have possibly taken this better. It was flawless. He landed flat backed in the center of that table. There's no better way to take this. This moment is where time stands still. Oh, yeah. Undertaker is like looking like he's about to suplex or get suplexed by mankind. And then there's that moment where you're holding your breath after Undertaker strikes Mankind with the right hand and Mankind starts to wobble back and forth. And you're just surely... You're like, no. 
It's not going to happen. That would be ridiculous. Yes, it would be. And then Undertaker just throws him, throws him off the cell, comes crashing through the table, and we get, I don't even think it's arguable, the most iconic line of commentary in the history of the WWE. I can't, I mean, there's some other ones that are pretty close, but none of them have the mainstream crossover attention that good God almighty that killed him as God is my witness. He is broken in half. And what I forget about that moment is King in between those two lines, you hear King. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's not a King. Ha ha. You know, Oh my God. Like crazy. It's a fuck. (laughs) Like, yeah. And when I saw Vince McMahon go out there, a chill ran down my spine. Well, funny you mentioned a chill running down your spine because the first person on the scene is ringside Dr. Francois Petit. Do you guys want to know who he is? I'd love to. Francois Petit. Francois Petit is in the 1995 adaptation of Mortal Kombat as the actor portraying Sub-Zero. What? No. Yep. No. Look it up. A chill ran down my... I didn't even... <laughs> you I didn't even, even try. going to yep. say that. It's incredible. Yeah. I'm like, when I saw this match, I'm like, I know that name. Fucking master of segues over here. Yeah, that was I, incredible. But I looked it up, and I there is you can there's actual footage of him in the outfit without the mask on, helping the other ninjas tie like the, the back of their outfit together. You can literally see him maskless. Like, that's him. And oh I am so glad he shows up because JR is begging for people on commentary to come out. Well, somebody get off their butts and get out at the back and get out here. When I, but yeah, when I saw McMahon go out there, it, it's just because if you know anything about Vince McMahon's on-screen character at this point, he would never no. have gone out to check on Mick. And no. so you see that and it's just, oh. That's your cue if you don't understand what you're watching Vince is out there with Slaughter, Patterson. I'm sorry, not Patterson. Uh, Slaughter, Briscoe, Jack Doan, Mike Chioda, and Jimmy Cordero all come out to check on him. And you can hear Terry Funk. Yeah, Terry, uh, Terry comes out, and he's talking to Francois. He said, he said, watch his arm. Watch his, his arm. His, his shoulder. shoulder. Yeah. You can hear it, and just like uh, reliving that moment is really, really difficult. And. I love the mental gymnastics they have to play on commentary to explain why Terry Funk is out there helping Mick Foley. He said, well, as, as, as much conflict as between Terry Funk and Mick, and, and Mick Foley, you have to believe there's got to be a bond there. Yeah, those two hate each other, JR. Well, you got to believe there's some kind of a sick bond between these two men. Like, no, they're best fucking friends. Well, and, and you have to think, it wasn't Mick's idea, right? As we talked about, this was sort of Terry's brainchild. Oh and and could you imagine what must be going through his mind? Well, it's the reason why he's the first one out there. Yeah. And so they have to raise the cage up about five or six feet so they can get the gurney in. And once Mick is on the stretcher, you can actually hear Jerry talking to Francois said, hey, do you, would, you, would you check on, on him right there? He's talking about Hugo. Yeah. Would you please go check on Hugo because I, I think he's hurt and that gets picked up on the headset. 
And then they're talking about how the cage is being lowered back down and Undertaker is trying to climb down. Well, I just, I have to wonder, and not from like a, oh, the Undertaker, what's he thinking while he's up there? What is Mark Calloway thinking while he's on top of that cell? Not when it's raising up, like, you know, like, oh, this cell's raising. What is he thinking seeing Mick Foley on the ground? Like, what could possibly have been going through his mind in that moment? Well, because uh, he had a good five minutes up there. Yeah. Well, funny you asked that because Steve Austin asked him point blank, what's going through your mind? And he said, I killed a son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. I thought he was dead. Mm-hmm. So when he starts moving, he's like, oh, thank God he's not dead. Now I got to get off this cell. And that's the segue into when the, he's being stretchered and then halfway up the ramp, the stretcher stops. And the first time I watched this match, God. Oh, dear God. 20 years ago now. I'm getting old. Um, I remember this moment of, because I had never seen it. I was not, I had never heard of it. I had never seen any of this. So they start talking about Hell in a Cell with, with Mick. I'm thinking, no way out 2000. You know, where he did the same stuff, but in a much safer, more controlled environment. Which is also an excellent, oh, yeah, absolutely. excellent oh, Hell in a Cell match. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, so good. So watching this at the time I was. I don't know, like 12, and I was terrified. Which is weird because I knew that Mick was fine because it was, you know, 2004 and he was I remember, wrestling. I remember being absolutely horrified the first time I saw this. Absolutely you were. So there's that moment where you see everybody stopping and there's a crowd of people and then the camera cuts over. The camera, because oh, they're using the hard cam and then they get a camera guy right at the moment as Mick stands up. And you can see Dave Hebner sweating bullets, bright red, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. begging Mick, no, no, please, no, do not get back in there. You can see Terry, who looks like he's seen a ghost, like, Mick, please, no, stop. And he thro- shoves him off. He climbs back up to the roof. There's that great moment where you can catch Undertaker, who's still only halfway down the cell on the other side, sort of lock eyes with mankind in that moment. I get chills thinking about it because then they start climbing back up. Oh, you could see Taker is just like, oh my God, you got this be crazy fucking, son of a bitch. Yeah. Like, that's all he can be thinking. Probably. He's like, okay, well, I got to get back up there. So they climb back up. Notice though, Taker walks along the main support beam and does not step off of it. And when he does, he steps on like the other. He will not step in the center of the square. He'll only stand where the beams are. It's probably smart. <laughs> yeah, because they already broke through it once. And then it's his turn to hit a chair shot. And then he choke slams Mick. And as bad as the first fall was, this is the fall where Mick got the bulk of his injuries. Imagine being there. Look, the decision to go back on top after what just happened is incredible. And then seeing what had just happened and then seeing Mick not only stand up again, but climb back onto the top of the cage is just insane. And, I mean, obviously the bump is probably the hardest bump I would care to ever see. Yeah, I, and, I don't want to see anything that looks more painful than that. And that's where we get our next sort of iconic bits of commentary, right? King immediately, that's it, he's, he's dead. He's dead. 
and JR, would somebody please, please stop, stop the, the damn match? Well, you got to remember, the bell hasn't even rung yet. I don't even know if it ever does. Like, I really don't know if it ever does. I, th- I think the match starts when Undertaker climbs up the cell the first time, but I don't think there's a bell. Really there's no ever. bell. Um, and but that fall through the cell to the ring with a chair falling as well. Now, here's the thing, though. When you watch Mick go down, when he hits, the back of his head smacks that chair. Mm-hmm. And as he's falling down, the chair hits him in the mouth and then whips back behind him and hits him in the forehead. The fall was bad, but that chair hits him three times. Two concussions, and it knocked his tooth through his bottom lip and into his nose. Now, him getting his shoulder messed up, him potentially having his kidneys and his ribs be bruised, that chair is what fucked him up. Yeah, the chair, I think, did the most damage in that fall, and what... What Undertaker recollects in this moment is thinking, well, thank God I stepped back onto the other panel whenever I delivered the choke slam. Because could you imagine? If he went through with him. If he went through with him and landed on top of Mick. Would probably would it was him. very, very possible at that moment because they were not anticipating the fall to happen that way. Mm-hmm. What they thought was going to happen is that the cage was going to like break. Not like open. But they were thinking he was going to bend in and that once he's kind of bent in, if the thing breaks, he can roll out and only fall about maybe six or seven feet. Yeah, they were they were saying the bump was supposed to be comparable to taking like uh, something off of the top rope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, if you recall in the first kind of cell match, Taker does like the big power slam to Sean and it, it, it holds bends in about three feet, but it right. holds. Right. They were expecting that to happen. They were expecting it to to dent inward a couple of feet, and worst case, like I said, if it breaks too much, Mick can roll through, and like I said, he's only going to fall a few feet, and he'll be fine. But that didn't happen. <laughs> the panel just completely gave. And once again, we've got Sub-Zero, <laughs> Terry Funk and the officials and at this point we've gotten some more iconic sound bites and Terry Funk is right there and he's like oh my god Mick are you okay and then you, we do catch a camera shot where Mick has his eyes open and is moving and that's when Undertaker realized okay he's not dead I need to go in this yes so and he climbs down I can't let's stop right there I can't believe Undertaker climbed down from the roof of the cell. This thing is like, what, 16 feet up in the air. He's a tall man, but he ain't 16 feet. No. He climbed down from that hole and drops into the ring on a broken, fracking leg. Sorry, I've been watching way too much Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) Well, you can lose that moment of him going, God damn my fucking foot. You can see that moment of him like stumbling and then catching his bearings. You do. I mean, obviously, that must have been painful as all hell. But I guess at that point, it's like, well, I probably don't have much of a right to complain. No. And then they clear the ring, and they wrestle a damn match. Well, hang on. There is a moment where Terry Funk stands up and gets in his face, and he's basically telling him, Mick's hurt, but he's okay. We have to give the people something, so choke slam me. So, shirt to his word, Taker punches him, knocks his hat off, choke slams Terry, 
Out of his shoes. Out of his shoes. His shoes are still in the ring. That was literally <laughs> the best. That was literally like we have to give the fans something and we have to buy time for Mick. So so they get Funk out of the cell and then it, it cuts to the camera showing the referees, like Jack Doan, locking the cell. Locked, and you can And JR is like Who made that <laughs> ruling? <laughs> That's my favorite one. <laughs> Who the hell made that rule? And then uh, my favorite line is the he is either the toughest man on the planet or he is the dumbest son of a bitch ever because he is standing. It's that moment where Mick is on his feet. He takes one right hand and immediately falls back down, but he gets to his feet. And you're just like, how? How is he standing? And they have a match, Landon. They actually have a match at this point, which... I think is the most incredible part of this, and I think maybe some people don't even remember that. Probably Agreed. not, um, and because there was a lot of time that was eaten up by you know Mick being checked on. Yes, but at this point, he still goes. They have a ten minute match. They actually do. <laughs> so uh, there's a pile driver, flawlessly delivered by Mick Foley. By Mick. Double onto arm, a chair. Onto yep. a chair, mind you. Yeah. Does double arm DDT? Although there's the moment where like. Taker goes for old school, and I'm not sure if this was Mick going, I got to do something, and he shoves Taker off, and he hits, he lands on the ropes. And you kind of go, okay, that could have been an accident. And then he hits the other side of the ropes and launches himself into Taker, who immediately just fucking swan dives into the cell. And I'm thinking, okay, if he's aware enough to do this, then he's okay, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then that's when you see him try to pick up the steel stairs and immediately drops them because his shoulder gave out. Yeah, that's it, this next five minutes or so. Uh, Undertaker hits him in that shoulder with the steps a couple of times. Yeah, which was just too much. Yeah, Taker does do his dive through the through the ropes into the <laughs> cell, so Undertaker starts bleeding. And you know, <laughs> if there was ever a moment where you thought enough's enough, Mick Foley then. Goes <laughs> under the ring because why the hell not? And picks up a bag of gummy bears. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure he wishes it was in hindsight. I bet so. So yeah, he gets the gummy bear. <laughs> <laughs> he gets the bag of tacks, which they were not supposed to use. He was. He asked Vince if he could use them. Said absolutely not. <laughs> But when has that ever stopped? <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, they get, uh, like, we're in the hell in the cell. What are they going to do? They can't stop the match. If he didn't stop it for either spot, either fall, he's not going to stop it for the thumbtacks. He gets him out. He pours him all over the ring, steps through them, which blows my mind. Now I love this because he like off the ropes and tries to just punch Taker onto it. I'm like, it's not going to work. <laughs> And Taker goes to the choke slam, which gets reversed by the mandible claw, which is a callback to their first match at King of the Ring. That's how the match ended. He reverses the choke slam and a mandible claw, and Taker passes out. But doesn't happen here. Taker picks him up on his back, walks over those thumbtacks, and just drops all of his weight. And Mick didn't think he got enough tacks, so he rolls in them. <laughs> then he takes a choke slam onto the tacks. And then he takes a tombstone, and fuck me, he tries to kick out of the tombstone. (laughs) He does. He fucking does. And I love that decision, 
to lift the leg. He tries to kick out. He does. He he just just to prove that he his heart is relentless, even if you've destroyed his body. It's one of the greatest things we've ever received. It's one of the greatest gifts we've ever received in pro wrestling. And and it's one of the greatest gifts that he's ever given to Vince McMahon. Uh, Vince tells him after the match, Mick, you have no idea how much I appreciate what you just did, but I never want to see that again. This has been the most ungodly match we will perhaps ever see, says JR. These two men gave you everything of their bodies, everything of their souls tonight. Foley suffered several injuries in the match. Let's go through them, right? We talked about the concussions. Two. A dislocated jaw. Yep. A dislocated shoulder. Bruised ribs. Internal bleeding. Puncture wounds. And several teeth knocked out. I think he had at least two knocked out. <sighs> How the hell would you have the wherewithal to two years later do this all over again? <laughs> In no way out. Landon, he has a hell of a match against Kane, like not even three months after Not this. even three months <laughs> And he, he doesn't do any of this shit, but he does get knocked off the side of the cell through a table. <sighs> but it, it's like you think, like, you don't have to do this, Mick. And I, I stand on the same side at Vince. Like, oh my God, that was amazing, but don't ever do that again, please. Like, at this point, Mick is, I think, 32. Don't do this anymore. You don't have to. But what, for me, most important thing of this match is when it's over, they get back there and check on him. They put him on the stretcher, and he tells Terry, I can't be on a stretcher twice in one night. And Terry... And Mike Kyoto walk him to the back. Incredible. If that doesn't tell you the whole story right there, I mean... I can't be on a stretcher twice in one night. <laughs> Whatever. And I think my, my favorite <laughs> my favorite story I, I heard from Mick, he talked about this on like, uh, a documentary he did, where when they got to the back, he's, he uh, asked Kyoto, did I use thumbtacks? And then Mike Kyoto looks at him, and in his words... Still had about 100 thumbtacks like in his arm and in his back. Yes, Jack, you use the thumbtacks. Yeah, he says, look at your arm. Well, that, well, I thought it was Taker. Did take, didn't did Taker say that? Well, Mick says that he, he asked Mike Kyoto. He doesn't remember. He, he, he says the only thing he really remembers is talking to Mike Kyoto after the match and being like, did I use thumbtacks? Like, yes, Jack, you use thumbtacks. Um, if you've ever seen the documentary Beyond the Mat, there is a phone call. That happened the same night that he did to the to the uh, producer to Bernie, and he plays it for you. And he just said, "I've never heard Mick sound so incoherent, oh. but at the same time, still sounds like Mick. He's you know he's intelligent, he's witty, he's funny, but he's just rambling on my answering machine for about three minutes. <laughs> and that's when he's like, Mick, are you okay, buddy? So you already mentioned Hugh, uh, Undertaker has a broken foot." He actually had some bruised ribs from this match. And Hugo allegedly had a broken leg and was knocked out when Mick landed on him. So, laundry list of injuries. One of the most spectacular things we've ever seen. 
and not something we necessarily want to to glorify and say that this should be what pro wrestling is. No, you know, yeah. I, I no, think I, I, disagree with I that. think it's important to note here as we are, you know, in appreciation of what Mick Foley did. Uh, you know, we definitely think it's what's more important is the safety of the competitors, yes. the announcers, the commentary team. It, it it's at the end of the day. This probably should not have happened. Oh, absolutely not. But it's one of those things where if they had stopped it, would we still be talking about both these guys when we talk about them now? Well, and I think another important thing to note, uh, as we get into favorite moments, and I think we can just obviously skip over that, because <laughs> um, come on. I've got two. Uh, Kevin Sullivan credits these moments as the single turning point that sunk the nail in the coffin for WCW. Yeah. Jim Ross describes it as that specific moment in competitive sports that is the play that defines the game. Love that. You have those across all sports. Yeah. You can think, if you think about American football, think about those amazing touchdown passes that absolutely that's what I come to watch football for. That's how people saw this match in these moments. There are a few things, uh, and, I, and I love the sports comparison. So, so for me, Tiger Woods, 2008, won the United States Open, which is almost always the hardest tournament every year in golf, uh, with a torn ACL. He walked the whole course all four days. He made a putt on the 18th hole to uh to tie Rocco Mediate and they the way the US Open worked then is that if you're tied at the end of the tournament you play 18 more holes the next day. Ugh. So this man who can't walk you can see him grimacing the whole time like is struggling to get around the golf course has to play what ends up being 91 holes because it goes one extra oh, the next day. Oh man. And he wins the US Open. And so I get the same feeling about that that I do about this. It's a performance in a sport that takes, you know, what you think people can do and crashes through that and shows you a level that they shouldn't go to probably, to be fair, but one that puts it on a pedestal above anything else. I mean, they never do anything like this ever again, unless it's in a completely controlled, controlled environment. environment. Mm-hmm. Like, t- yeah. he, like Mick goes through the roof of the cell at, at, at in No Way Out 2000, but it was on a hinge, and the ring was gimmicked to give underneath his weight. Correct. Completely safe. Looks spectacular, as safe as possible. Uh, Rikishi gets thrown off the cell at Armageddon that same year, lands literally on a bed with a bunch of springs and mattresses in it. Once again... As safe as possible. The next time somebody goes off the roof of the cell, it's Shane McMahon jumping onto a crash pad. Mm-hmm. So they've emulated it, but in safe environments. But what always pisses me off is people shit on how that looks safe. I'm like, fuck you. You go do it then. Oh, somebody's at home telling telling me that they know how to fall. Like, I mean, JR makes that line yeah. during this match. But it's one of those things where when I see somebody or uh, you know what Chris Jericho getting thrown off the roof of the war games 
like a, a couple months ago. People shat on how it looked fake. I'm like, so you want Chris Jericho to get thrown 20 feet to the concrete? And then they'll shut, shut the fuck up. Like, they'll stop talking. And I'm like, thank you for my point. You don't want to see people get hurt. You want to see a, a, spect- a spectacular stunt. So I, I guess the... Because I will say, just on the... You know, to sort of play devil's advocate a little bit for blood and guts, is that... I, no, I don't think anybody wants to see Chris Jericho get hurt. No. But production-wise, they could have done things a little differently to make it look better. Yeah, but... Right? I, yeah, I, I agree with that, but... Because they that initial camera angle, they don't cut back to it. Mm-hmm. When you see kind of like the overhead shot, where it looks like the metal, the sheet metal, just buckles around them, that looked spectacular. Mm-hmm. It's just that first shot where it's like, oh, yeah. cut yeah. away. There's things that they could have done to yeah. make it look, you know, a little bit, a little bit more realistic and but better. But the I, fact that they took precautions to protect Jericho yeah. is yeah. a good thing. So much more important. Man, so much taking more a twenty foot drop. So much like, more important. Yeah, but I, just, I get so pissed off, and we say this all the time, no one hates wrestling more than wrestling fans. That is a fact. But I get so pissed off <laughs> when people want to compare stunts to this. I'm like, this should, yeah, not, this have this should not have happened. Agreed. Agreed. And I, I don't want to see people in situations like this, unless it is as safe as possible. Okay. So, on the 23rd anniversary of King of the Ring 1998... We now have the unenviable task of comparing this to 65 previous matches and ranking it on our list of the greatest matches of all time. Obviously, we've talked sort of at the top of the show about the question of does it deserve a spot at all? And I think we've convincingly said yes to that. I I don't think that's the question at this point. Although we completely understand those doubters that say that it shouldn't belong on a list like this. We get it. We do. And if you have thoughts, whether that you think it should or not come on this list, let us know. Let us know. Reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, email us. We This is obviously a phenomenal talking point. And so we want to know where you stand. But where do we stand? We have to add how memorable this match was to our considerations. I mean, and I think moving forward, we need to think about the, memor- the memorability of if that's a word, the legacy of mm-hmm. the match uh, to, you know, how, where on the list does it go? Uh, and if we went by that alone, this would be number one. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, Foley credits uh, the Jimmy Snuka dive from the top of the steel cage as the reason Mick Foley wanted to become a professional wrestler. How many people do you think he inspired with his dive? Uh, well, uh, all of CZW. how many people did he inspire and continues to inspire by that yeah what was that kid on twitter a couple years ago that actually got a spot in a ring of honor match oh yeah that his whole thing was just putting himself through tables and exactly crazy shit that he should have never been doing no but like he got a spot in a ring of honor supercard yeah because the internet just loved this (laughs) this kid could you um, could you imagine if there was Twitter, 1998. Oh, my God. Uh, the entire world would have been talking about this. I just... Hashtag well, broken in half. Well, you, you know, like, this match is why we started getting the Foley as God signs in yeah. the ring. Yeah. yeah. And I think Triple H said once, well, if you're not, then you've got to be something pretty close because you should not be here. Mm-hmm. You should not be walking. I think my favorite quote about this match is, once again, it's Triple H. 
I've seen you walk into that match, and I've seen you try to walk after it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So where the hell do we put this? Well, here's the problem. Um, it's two different matches. It is the spectacle of the first, like, seven minutes, which most of it gets eaten up by the two crazy spots and Mick being checked on, and then this other, like, ten minutes of them actually having a back and forth. You can't separate them. So you can't have strictly the bell-to-bell action and not have the two spectacles. But we're ranking this as a match, not as a spectacle. So for me, this is number 66. It shouldn't have happened, but it's far too important to not be on a list like this. But I really don't want to put it above any other matches that didn't have moments that are, yes, important, but also should never have been allowed to happen. Okay. For me, I'm going into this thinking about how legendary the moment was, how important the moment was to professional wrestling as a whole, and with that in consideration, I would find only four matches on our list more important, so I would say it would go at number five. Holy shit. Are you fucking kidding me? Spencer, take it away. (laughs) What the hell am I supposed to do with that? Okay, number five or number 66? Okay. You've got a lot of room to play with, sir. So here's the other thing that I think is important. This was not two up-and-coming stars trying to make a name for themselves with a crazy spot. These are two legends of the business that were well-established. Now, obviously, they have a lot more in their career later that makes them, you know, Hall of Famers and, and, and legends. But these two guys are already had really good careers. Yeah. They were both had been to basically every company and were respected by everybody across the board. Yes. And to know that and still do this as if they had so much to prove. Well, I think Mick had a lot to prove with this. And yeah, I think that's why I, he was willing to take these risks. I think Mick Foley, his whole career could be summed up as having so much to prove. Ranking this and comparing it to Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, and comparing it to any number of matches on our list is as impossible as anything we've done so far. This is this match is going to be a turning point in what this list is, similarly to the way this match was a turning point in what professional wrestling was. I, as evident. By Paul and I being on absolute opposite ends. You, you of know the spectrum. what? I'm I'm looking at the list right now. You know what other match I think of that? Oh man, that went a little too far. Is Tully Blanchard and Magnum T. Uh, yeah, that that definitely. As soon as you said that went a little too far, that one for sure. That is that one, and then Muda and Liger are the only matches like, oh, that went a little too far, where we have attempted murder. Naturally, for me, the comparison starts at the first Hell in a Cell match. And, let's be clear, part of the reason that ranked as high as it did, currently inside, or it's our, it's our standard bearer at number 30 right now, is because of the moment it produced 
with the debut of Kane. Yes. So I think there's a good reason to compare the two of those things. And the Kane moment lasts the test of time, but not in the same way this does. No. So I would have to go higher than that with this match. Now, where do I stop? It's a great question. I don't know if I could put it over some of the the wrestling clinics and classics that we've covered, like Walter and Tyler Bate, like Masawa and Kawada. You know, like those, I don't know, man. Like that's really, really hard. But these are also two of the largest and most influential characters in the history of professional wrestling. And in a moment, we've said it before, it's a moment that extends beyond professional wrestling, which is something as wrestling fans is a good thing for the, for the outside world to get exposure to professional wrestling is a good thing. Unless it's obviously in negative ways, but that's a different conversation. (laughs) Uh, So that bumps it up for me as well. The fact that 23 years later, you could look on Twitter any day of the week and someone's got a clip with a gif with of G- Mick being thrown off the cell or, or a clip with JR's audio, you know, put over the top of it every day, every single day. So I, I don't know if I go to five, but I know I I'm far from 66. I, I want to go to the comparison with, uh, Misawa and Kawada. Cause I, I agree with you. I think for that one, I don't know, you know the, the legacy factor there is so incredibly high um, that, okay, I might be able to grant you that it, it couldn't quite go over. No. Uh, I would disagree with Walter Tyler Bate. I think that's an incredible match, um, but it, it, it does not hold the candle to, to what this one did for me. So I'm somewhere between that Samoa Joe, CM Punk, Zack Sabre Jr., Osprey you know, area. Um, and I, I think personally, I would put it over Joe and Punk just based on the fact that that one sort of, you know, it it didn't it it didn't really resolve at the end. I am trying really hard to not be a victim of the moment. I am too. That's why I went with the lowest floor possible. <laughs> yeah, you kind of because right now, after watching that match multiple times, after living in the moment, holding my breath. It's hard for me not to say, God, how do you not put that in the top five? But taking a step back. Well, we, we can't just rate the moment. We have to rate the entire well, that's exactly right. 17 minute. And that's match. exactly right. And, and it's all good. You know what I mean? Like the match they have afterwards is still solid, solid stuff. Um, okay. What if we do something that we've never done before on this show? What if we sleep on it? And we start the next episode after reflecting and maybe after asking some professional opinions. I like this idea. We start our next episode with the ranking of episode 66. I, I think we may have to because I don't, I don't see all three of us agreeing on one number. <sighs> and, and it's because you two are so far apart. Yeah. You know, like I, because I'm, I'm leaning towards Landon. Like I'm, I think if well, I, I had mean, to... I, I I did talk myself into nineteen, but it would take some convincing to get me to come down from nineteen. Oh man, yeah, you know, um, 
Let's do it. Let's sleep on it. Because and this is a huge one. It and, is. And Spencer, you said yourself, it's it's going to, to play a huge role in where other matches rank, so I don't just want to sort of put it somewhere to say that we did. Let's come back to it, and, and I apologize if you've sat through this whole time, and I know you're not getting the ranking today, but start the next episode because we need this extra time. And if, and if you've listened to this match or this episode rather and our next episode has not come out yet you know you're listening to it in the first few days please it drops please reach out to us tell us tell us right now where you would rank it on a list of 66 yeah where does it go it's rough where does it go because we don't know yet no and, and we'll put we'll put our full list of 66 out there so that you can see exactly what matches we're trying to book it against uh, as well but man what a tough, tough, tough call. The unenviable position of having to rank this match. So I guess we'll find out on episode 67. <laughs> Happy anniversary, King of the Ring 1998. We've still got some thinking to do. Insane. Insane. Until then, I'm Spencer. I'm Paul. I'm Landon. And this, this is Last Match Standing. Last match standing.